0: Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for both of our films tonight.
1: plan to?
2: No, we really kind of didn't. Look, Paul, you were with Danielle for one weekend. That's my
1: point, that it was just one weekend. Paul,
2: is something wrong? You've been kind of funny. Hello? Who is this? Because I, I want to be by myself. Do you understand?
1: I'm trying to be here for you. I
2: don't need you to be here for me. I didn't ask you to be here for me.
1: You think you know everything there is to know about me. Rachel, could you stop, please? Rachel? Hey, where are you going? I'm leaving. You're sick. I'm taking my film on this tour of the South, and unfortunately Rachel can't come with me because she got sick, so I'm wondering if you want to come with me instead.
0: Alex. So how many people did you call before you called me to come on this trip with you? You're not the first person I called. Are you asking me if I ever hooked up with someone in the
1: audience? <laughs> you are so funny.
0: Thank you so You're much. Really Love her. And I want someone to discover my body relatively early after I die. I think River could be that person. Does he know how we first met? We haven't talked about
1: you. I'm sorry, okay. Mr. So, yeah. Self-involved filmmaker. What do you
3: voice mean? Keep, you your, mean? Voice Keep your voice
0: out, Keep your
2: voice down. Don't touch me. I want to shoot.
0: Bring it over.
1: Get out of here, cause the police is on its way. I told you you couldn't do it. My back is raging with pain. <laughs> hey! 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 Come on! Is everything OK? Yeah, everything, everything's, everything's fine. Things are horrible. To live fully, one must accept a life must end. I'm ready to die, which means I'm ready to live. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Eric Cohn from IndieWire, and tonight's guest, Alex Karpovsky.
3: Hi, Alex. Hi, Eric.
1: How's it going? Good. How you doing? Good. So Thanks for coming,
3: everybody. I have to say, uh, you know, I watch a lot of movies, and usually after a filmmaker starts to accrue a body of work, you can get a sense for what their style is, what their specific interests are. And one of the things that's interesting about... What you've done so far, and I think everybody who saw these two trailers can tell, is that you're not as easy to put into a box in the sense that we can't exactly tell you know, what your overall plan is. Uh, but I think I have one theory, which is in Rubberneck, we have this sort of dark, creepy thriller about a very disturbed person. And in Red Flag, we have this very light, funny comedy about a very disturbed person.
1: Mm-hmm. so I see where we're going
3: where where you know what is it that interests you about about writing these very neurotic personalities
1: well partially write what you know and I feel like I'm a very neurotic person so I feel comfortable writing from that space um, I'm more I'm interested in character driven stories uh, that appeals to me much more exploration of a psyche uh, of a profile is much more interesting to me than a plot driven story or an aesthetically driven story. I just can't make aesthetically driven stories with my budgets usually. So I just tried to focus on the people and within people, it's stories of obsession and neuroses that I'm most drawn to. And I guess the best answer I can give you as to why is just because I can affiliate with those people and I feel like I have enough familiarity with them that I could. Uh, Heighten them for comedic effect in comedies and make them hopefully engaging enough in dramatic elements to be seductive and worth watching
3: so that being said obviously if if anyone knows your work on let's say girls, they would assume that comedy is that natural direction for you as a as a storyteller as an actor, and so forth, and yet we look at rubberneck and it and it seems like it's it's something very different so Starting with that movie, what is it about that material that interested you? And and you know, did it did it feel like it was, it was sort of a change of pace based on what you'd done before?
1: It was definitely a change of pace. Uh, I made five movies, and Rubberneck's the only one that's not a comedy in some form or another. So it's definitely a change of pace, and that's partially what appealed. What that was partially at the root of the appeal is to try something different and to you know, basically exercise a different part of your brain. I love psychological thrillers as a viewer. It's my favorite genre as a viewer. I've always fantasized about trying to make one. And then the opportunity congealed in Boston a few years ago.
3: So, so walk us through that process. My understanding is that this was actually based on a, a true story to some degree.
1: Yeah, inspired by real events. And I, and I only make that semantic difference because we did take a lot of liberties in the narrative uh, in telling the story but the conceit is something that did happen it was a true crime story in Boston it's a workplace romance gone terribly wrong there was a tryst that uh, happened over a weekend um, the guy got um, infatuated with this girl and she was not interested in having it go any longer and he slowly started to unravel and when a new man entered the picture a few months later uh, and a budding romance began to form between the new guy and the woman the scorned lover embarked on a systematic sabotage campaign of this new budding romance with very unsavory and criminal consequence so we took all that but all the other elements of the story were fictionalized or dramatized for effect
3: so when you say dramatized what do you mean exactly?
1: well uh, I don't want to give too much away about Rubberneck but the the unsavory consequences in Rubberneck were much more explicit and grisly than what actually happened both, in both cases there was a criminal element but we took it further in our movie for story reasons.
3: And you talked about being inspired to some degree by crime thrillers. Were there specific movies that you were thinking about or filmmakers that inspired this particular story?
1: A few, yeah. I really liked um, Caché by Michael Haneke. I thought it was a really good movie and it definitely an aesthetic that we try to mimic at times in the making of this film. I really liked this film called Bubble by Steven Soderbergh, which I think is underseen, but I really liked it. It's a very simple, lo-fi, stripped-down Um, Triangle, Love Triangle, about infatuation uh, with criminal consequences. Um, Those two were really big, and I'm a huge Fatal Attraction fan. I think it's a really fun, splashy thriller, and we try to mimic it in certain ways as well.
3: And so in, in terms of atmosphere, I mean, given that this was new terrain for you, did you have a sense for how how you would map out creating that the mood for the movie? You know, did, were there did you have specific mentors? You know, outside of the comedic realm, who kind of showed you how to cultivate this, this thing since it wasn't you know quite as familiar turf.
1: No, I wish I did have mentors and gurus along the way, but this was a guruless um, thing. We, I mean. Out of the five movies that I made, this one was the only one that we had a tripod for. This is the only one where we committed a significant amount of our budget to lens packages and to lighting. And we, we put a lot more care and time into the aesthetic of the film. Uh, and we storyboarded the whole thing. Most of my other movies are run and gun. There's a lot more spontaneity and, imp- and improvisation. And this is something that we just wanted to make much more uh, with a lot more precision.
3: So we're going to show you a clip from the film to give you a better sense of, of what he's talking about here. Do you want to set that up right quick?
1: Sure. This is uh, close to the beginning of the film. The main character and um, the object of his desire, this uh, uh, co-worker named Danielle, they, they've just had a very steamy weekend, basically a tryst. And in this scene, it's coming to an end. Let's take a look. I you there all the time? It's not like in a... No, 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 the food, the
2: food is great. The
1: the food's incredible, it's just the the atmosphere. music is loud. Or, it's it's deafening. Or we could just go to a sushi place, which I know is quiet. You know, it's peaceful, it's not...
2: You know, um, I have that paper due tomorrow um, at 10 a.m. and if I don't turn it in, Ken is going to kill me. So, um, I should probably get home and get on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you mind just dropping me back off at my place? Sure. Okay, thanks. Is everything all right? Oh yeah. No, I I just know that um, we're going to be sitting at dinner and all I'm going to be thinking about is (laughs) the paper. Mm
1: -hmm. Is this something I said?
2: Oh no. No, no, no. I just, uh, it's getting late and I think it's, you know.
1: I just thought, I just thought we had a plan to get some dinner after the movie.
2: Mm, no, we really kind of didn't. I, I just thought that it was gonna be, you know, movie, and then, no, I mean, I like, this was a lot of fun, it was great hanging out, but I really should get back
1: home. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'll give you a ride back home. Okay. That's what a man cannot take a hint. That's an exploration of that sentiment. Yeah, I, I
3: almost feel bad for you there, but I'm also a little creeped out. Um, <laughs> uh, talk about choosing to act in the movie yourself, because it's a very different kind of role than what people may have seen you in before.
1: Right, it was less of a choice and more of a reaction to circumstance. Uh, I wrote the film with a friend of mine named Garth. We had no intention of putting me in the movie, we wrote it for um, someone that we could find. We didn't know exactly who. Uh, we had a long, laborious casting process. We fin- we, uh, it, last- it lasted months. We, were f- we finally found someone we really loved up in Boston. He has a totally different energy than me. He's older. He's shorter. He just looks very different, and he was perfect for the role. And then we started rehearsing, and we cast him, and um, on the fourth day of production, he had a family crisis, and a health crisis, and he had to drop out of the movie. And there was no number two. There was no backup that we had available. So I basically took over and basically tried to mimic what he had started. So
3: you actually shot scenes with this guy.
1: Yeah, we had four days of production uh, work, and we had to redo all of them when he dropped out. So it was a challenge. But to answer your question, it was never a premeditated idea to... Try to you know explore different types of what I could do as an actor. That was never the intention.
3: But once you did, I mean, what was the process of getting into the headspace of this guy, not as a writer, but as actually the the on-screen manifestation of him?
1: Well, I've had I had the guy's name who couldn't do the movie, his name was Bob. I had so many conversations with Bob in the development of the backstory of this character. So a lot of that was just remembering what I tried to feed Bob and remember all the great thoughts and input that he had. Uh, in creating the character. That was a huge part of getting ready. Another part was thinking about my dad. My dad is a scientist. He's an introvert. He's a misanthrope. He's a ther- he's a hermit. I think he's harboring a lot of, um, like a lot of scientists, they, they're try- they internalize a lot of things. Um, and they feel more comfortable doing that than verbalizing to to some extent. And so I thought about my dad a lot. And then I got glasses and shoes and other things to help you kind of physically and viscerally get in the space.
3: And and did you sympathize with him
1: on any level? I did. I mean, one of the main challenges of the movie was to make this character um, intriguing and peculiar, but not enough that you can't sympathize with him. And then on top of that, after he does heinous acts, uh, we have another third of the movie. We have act three still to go with him. And can we still nurture engagement and and sympathy with him after he's done something so horrible? That was the main challenge and source of enthusiasm for me in making the movies. Can Can we do that specific thing?
3: Now, I know all of your work up until this point, or at least for the last few years, has been informed, at least to some degree, by improvisation. In fact, you even made a documentary about an improv group called Trust Us. This is all made up, which people should uh, look up if they haven't seen. Uh, and yet, you're talking here about this being a much more controlled sort of production process. So, I wonder if this was a change for you as both an actor and a director in terms of how much leeway you had for that that aspect of, of delivery.
1: Yeah, as an actor and as a director, it was completely different. I mean, everything, like I said, was storyboarded and scripted. Um, largely because I never did this before, so I wanted to be tethered to something that we were comfortable with on the page, and I didn't want it to change because it could change in a way that I was not comfortable with later on. Uh, so it was basically a way of uh, being a control freak and, and not letting what I like get away from me. That was the that was the main reason for it. Also, we I was working with slightly more resources slightly more personnel and we just didn't have the agility uh, to kind of change locations easily in case something went wrong. Everything had to be kind of tethered to our production schedule and the days were really tight and I just didn't think we could do a lot of improvisation.
3: So speaking of being a control freak, let's uh, talk about Red Flag, Mm -hmm. which... uh, Good transition. uh, I I I was thinking, you know, uh, it's almost weird to have this conversation with you in this format because much of Red Flag is about how you're being forced to sort of discuss your life in this public forum for a bunch of strangers and then go back to whoever you are outside of all that. And, you know, I know you well enough to know that you're not quite as uh, maybe... Challenged as this guy that we see, who has your name in, in Red Flag, but but I was wondering, you know, what what was the genesis of this project, and and just how autobiographical it is.
1: What was the genesis? Of how autobiographical? Well, it's my fifth movie. My second movie is a movie called Woodpecker, and I finished it a few years ago. But last year, an organization asked to put it on a tour of the South, which was flattering, and. Uh, And that's why we make movies, I feel like, to show it with audiences. But I didn't want to just go on this promotional tour by myself. I thought it would be very lonely, and I would just sort of throw away two weeks. Not throw away, but it would be kind of an unproductive two weeks of my life to basically refry an old chapter of my life, rehash an old chapter of my life. So I decided to make a movie about a filmmaker on tour with his movie. So it's a very, you know, playfully meta... Uh, narcissistic, self-congratulatory, masturbatory endeavor, and it was great fun working on it. So that was the genesis. I just wanted to take advantage of this tour that, was, that fell in my lap. And how autobiographical? Well, I, I basically tried to, the main character's name is Dallas Karpovsky, which is my real name, so that's some indication. But he was, I try to amplify my own fears and neuroses and delusional, delusional ambitions for comedic effect. And, and, th- and that sort of stuff just I find funny. I, like, I think Larry David does that on Curb. He plays a caricature of himself, you could argue. Louis C.K. I feel does it on his show. Um, Woody Allen certainly did it in a lot of his early films. And um, there's a movie called The Trip by Michael Winterbottom with Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden, and they basically, I feel, play caricatured versions of themselves. They call each other Steve and Rob. So that's sort of what I tried to do. Um, so that was, by, that was sort of amplified reality. And, uh, but the movie is basically about I go on tour with this movie and a groupie follows me, becomes obsessed, and I try to ply her away and hook her up with my friend. That's the middle of the movie, anyway, and that's never happened. So that's completely fictionalized.
3: We could take that off the table for now. For now, for now, All right. So we do have a clip of that one. Can you set that up right quick?
1: Yeah, so this is sort of in the beginning of the movie as well. Um, uh, how to succinctly set this up. I basically was supposed to go on this tour in the movie with my fiance, but we broke up right before the tour started. So I called a bunch of friends to join me because I didn't want to be alone. The last thing my character wanted to do is be alone with his thoughts for seven hours a day in a car on this tour. So he decided to bring a friend along, but he had to go through like eight or nine names before one of his friends finally agreed. So this friend agreed to go with them. They're not close friends. Uh, And the point of the scene, I guess, uh, was to basically get these guys to start bonding with each other. They're not close friends, but their relationship will go through a lot of, a lot of stress is going to be applied to it. And for the audience to care about it, I wanted to kind of build the foundations for a bromance. So that's one of these building blocks.
0: How's the call? I was good. Sorry I was on the phone so long. Oh, that's okay. How are you? Are you alright?
1: Yeah, yeah. Good. How's your back? I thought it was getting better. I feel like the past little while it was getting better and better, and then these little just sharp little I was in the
0: bathroom a little while ago and I just felt like it just just like jolt of pain go up my spine. I know this uh guy who's a reflexologist and he he fixes backs. By uh you know, what a reflexologist. Is? Uh, the foot, foot. Yeah, they, he massages pressure points in the feet, and he actually re- fixes back pain that way. So you might to think about looking up a reflexologist tomorrow and you know, checking that out because it could help. I doubt that. I doubt that reflex. You shouldn't dismiss it. I think there's uh, Africans when they get circumcised, African women, uh, who they, who want to have a clitoris reattached. They plastic surgeons will take the tip of their toe, they'll sever the tip of their toe, and reattach it to their vagina. If there's a connection between the tip of the toe and, and, and the vagina, there's probably a connection between pressure points in the foot and then, like, the energy that r- resides in the base of the back, the cuddlinghi, which is, sounds like yours is out of whack. And so I, I think it's worth checking into, Alex.
1: Well, that's kind of the movie, like, two morons talking about stuff they don't know for about 85 minutes.
3: Yeah, so. I, do, I do feel like to some degree we are just sort of trapped with you in, in, in that experience. Uh, tell us about who that actor is we just saw.
1: That actor is a guy named Orner Tuchel, and I met him at Sundance. He was in this movie called Septian by Michael Tully, and he's a really funny, strange extrovert. Sounds
3: like a good match, maybe?
1: Yeah, he was a perfect foil for my character, I thought.
3: Right, and, and, and the, the groupie in the film, what's her story?
1: Her name is Jennifer Prediger, she's a fantastically gifted actress, and I met her at Sundance as well. I met both of these guys about three weeks before we were supposed to shoot the movie. I started getting panicky about who's going to be in it, and then these guys just stumbled into into my life. And Jennifer was in a movie called Uncle Kent by Joe Swanberg, who's a very prolific filmmaker, and uh, she's just incredibly funny and sexy and a wonderful improviser. This whole movie was shot without a script, it was shot with a 30 page outline. And again, I think that's how Larry David does Curb. He has like a seven or eight page outline for his 30 minute shows. So we basically did the same idea. Every scene in the film, I kind of wrote a synopsis for, three or four sentences for, and I tried to find actors that could hit the beats of the scene in their own words. And uh, and these guys did a great job.
3: It's interesting you mentioned Larry David, uh, one of the high watermarks, I think, for this kind of awkward comedy that you tap into here and in some other films. Uh, I know that also being involved with girls, you've had some interactions with Jenna Apatow. Uh, is there anything about you know, that sort of mentality? I mean, I know you mentioned bromance, for example, as, as sort of like a shorthand for a certain kind of comedy. Are there, are there things about that kind of mainstream form of comedy that, that have inspired you as a, as a storyteller or as an actor?
1: Well, no. I, I feel like what we're trying to do is a little bit more raw, uh, and less formulaic. I, d- I don't want to say formulaic in a bad way, but because I, I like the formula a lot of the time In fact with Judd's movies if there is any formula I usually really really enjoy it, but there's actually a lot more dramatic resonance with his films than a lot of other Movies and in fact his last movie which is probably my favorite movie. It's not a bromance at all. Anyway, um, I, uh, I Kind of lost out of the question, but basically I try to make something that's a little bit more stripped down and raw Uh, And and I don't know if I'd call this movie a romance. I'd I'd call it more of like a love uh, love triangle, like kind of like rubberneck, or maybe a love rectangle because there's a fourth girl that enters. It's a love rhombus. That's what it is. You're inventing new categories
3: left and right here. (laughs) So so uh, speaking of girls, I I do want to get into that show to some degree. Uh, Obviously. Some of the, the the seeds of your involvement there were your appearance in tiny furniture, which was a first feature or not 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 a first feature but it but it was a i think for a lot of people the first encounter people they had with with lena's lena Dunham's sense of humor and, and uh I'd be curious to to learn from you uh, when it got to the point where she was going to have a bigger opportunity and she wanted to bring you along you know what were what were you, was your expectation for what that kind of a show would be like?
1: Well, when I, I I didn't think girls I didn't I didn't know if anyone would watch the show, and that's not because I didn't believe in it. I believed in it tremendously, um, I, and I have tremendous amount of faith. I think it's because I believed in it to in, to such a large extent, is because I was very pessimistic. I liked it so much initially because it was very it's it's it was very narrow and specific, um, and I thought um, and I thought and it was really authentic, and I thought it would just it would people would just be very confused by it. They're like, this is not airbrushed. Where's the laugh track? Um, these are not the people that normally, these are not the faces that normally inhabit a TV comedy space. And the whole thing's going to be like, whoa, we don't get it. And a lot of people didn't get it. And, um, and I thought there'd be a lot more of those people. And I thought it would be a really small and sort of niche thing that would uh, only appeal to, like, yeah, like any niche thing. A very sm- I didn't know if only girls between 23 and 25 would watch it. I didn't know if only hipsters in Greenpoint would watch it. Uh, I didn't know all these things, but because I think the story has... I I, I don't know why a lot of people watch it. I guess, I mean, I know why I watch it and why I like it, why my friends like it, but I don't understand why people in Wyoming like it, necessarily. Maybe it's because the problems and the issues are universal in some way, and maybe, as a kind of totally different reason, maybe it's like um, there's sort of this... I don't know. There's something really authentic about the show that I like. And I feel like maybe someone who is in Wyoming and is in their, like a couple in their 60s, maybe it's like going to the zoo and they see like the lion cage and they look at it and like, whoa, this is, uh, this is how the lion lives. And I think maybe, bec- and they're kind of infatuated with it for a moment. And I think maybe what Lena and we're trying to do on the show is we're trying to give a very authentic and accurate depiction of life in New York with a bunch of 20-year-olds. And for these people, It's very exotic. It's very confusing in a row, but they're interested in it because, it's, because they feel it's real and because they feel they're getting an accurate depiction of, of the life that they don't know and maybe are interested in. But we're not trying to romanticize a life. Uh, this is not sex in the city. These are not ideals. Uh, this is not Beverly Hills 90210. This is not the perfect high school experience. This is something, hopefully, that's reflective of what's really happening in Williamsburg or in Greenpoint. And I feel... Living there, I feel that it is, and remembering my past, the little of my past that I do remember, it is accurate.
3: I think to some degree you could apply that description to Red Flag as well in, in the sense that it allows people to see this very unique kind of lifestyle of a filmmaker on the road. Girls, by comparison, has been an interesting journey to follow because this character has been able to evolve. So I'm curious to know, you know, how, how much input do you have into how you know, things have been coming along, especially now that, you know, for those who have seen the most recent episode, we know that the relationship between your character and Ocean Maneman's character has really reached an interesting point in its development.
1: Yeah, what's so fun about working on a show that's ongoing, I've never done anything in TV by a long shot, and what's interesting is that you're, and if the show is seen by some people, is the show, and there's a big break between seasons as we have, and obviously a week-long break between episodes, is that the the narrative gets sort of woven into a public discussion because of the internet, largely. And it can reverberate and, in some ways, respond to that discussion, especially for, as we go from one season to the next. And I feel like a, people's sentiments and their opinions does register with the writers, especially with Lena, and it makes it feel like a very organic and pulsing live thing, and that's very fun to do. It's really fun to be able to talk about Ray Plashansky and then when we go back into production at the end of March, to kind of go back into his role. like that's You never have that option with film, unless you're doing sequels, which most indie films don't do. Um, so that's really nice. Well, that wasn't even close to your question, was it?
3: You got the right idea. Okay. So we'll go to questions from the audience in just a second. Uh, one, one thing I'd be curious to know is uh, you're everywhere now, man. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm turning on the TV and I'm seeing trailers for, for these movies. Uh, obviously, you're on Girls. There's a movie playing in Brooklyn now called Almost in Love that you act alongside Alan Cumming in. In January, you were in a movie called Supporting Characters. So how do you feel about this ubiquity? And can we expect uh, that same sort of prolific output to continue in the, in the near future?
1: I don't know what the near future has to offer, because a lot of these movies, you know, it's, it's a real struggle for them to get finished, to get um, a good festival release, to get a good distribution platform and all that sort of stuff. So I, I'm not in charge of that stuff. So I don't know how things will get out there and to what extent. But I can say it's really fun to work on projects that you believe in with your friends. And for the most part, all the things that you mentioned, all these projects, that's the case. I'm really proud of all those movies. Genuinely, I have no hesitation saying that. And they're made by people that I know and that I feel very comfortable doing. There's nothing better than doing something creatively with your friends that ultimately you're proud of. And I'm fortunate enough that there's a bunch of them happening at the same time right now.
3: OK, so let's go to questions from the audience. As an added incentive, anybody who asks a question gets a free girls poster signed by this guy. So.
2: Hi. Um, it seems like you have a lot of really interesting and intriguing stories to tell, and I'm wondering if you have advice for young filmmakers who are looking for ideas on how to intrigue people and tell a unique story without kind of falling back on cliches or something boring. I
1: guess. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if this is applicable to everyone, but and, and it's totally a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Um, tell the most honest story that you can tell and it, don't worry if it's a cliche. It, we are all, <laughs> this is going to sound generic, we are all so different when you get past like the first two levels of the surface. Everyone has got a completely different constellation of fears, of ambitions, of childhood experiences that have shaped your sensibility and your persona. And if your story is a reflection of those things, there's no way it's not going to be unique. There's no way it's not going to be original. You just have to have the fear, uh, the, the courage to to want to dive into that if if that's the type of story character driven stories you're interested in so that's what i would say and right now it's an incredibly exciting time to be a young filmmaker because the cameras are really really cheap really good cameras cameras that a lot of people can't tell the difference between studio cameras like if you have a good lens and good lighting on a dslr camera which costs two thousand dollars you can do something that's very aesthetically presentable and that that blurring of, of, uh, of aesthetic lines between what we can do and what Holly can do is very recent. It's about two years old. And then on top of that, you have Kickstarter, which is the other big obstacle, is how do you raise money? There's all these democratic or you know, piecemeal ways to, to make money now, and that's also a real paradigm shift, and that's also only two or three years old. So it's an incredibly exciting time to be a filmmaker, and quite frankly, you have no excuses anymore. If you want to make a movie, you can get the money, you have the technology, go out and do it. Hi, Alex. Uh, two questions. Uh, do you plan on promoting films for the Tribeca Film Festival? Uh, so how do you do it? And uh, what advice do you have for someone who wants to make independent animation films? Uh, I don't know anything about animation. I'm sorry. But I would say if there are people that you like in the animation world, just email them. I know people think no one responds to your emails, no one will read your emails, that will get lost in some sort of assistance email. Ultimately, a lot of the stuff does get through to people. And if you're sincere and you're eloquent and you make some sort of a pitch, a lot of people do respond to you. And maybe you can include a sample. I read a, I heard a WTF podcast by Mark Marin where he interviews Tim Heidegger from Tim and Eric. And he basically, when he was 24 years old, they sent a video to Bob Odenkirk, who was doing Mr. Show at the time. And he's like, you guys are awesome. I love the five-minute video that you sent. Um, I love your energy. I love your weird email that you included with it. So let's have lunch. And they had lunch, they dazzled him, and that became the start of their journey, which I think is a very interesting journey. So I don't. I know nothing about animation, but I do know that stuff definitely happens that way. And the first question is something about Tribeca Film Festival?
3: Well, just to clarify, this this movie is being released by Tribeca Film, which is a distribution arm of Tribeca Film Enterprise. So. Right.
1: Yeah. So, Rubberneck premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, and Red Flag premiered shortly after that, the LA Film Festival, but Tribeca Films, as Eric said, is releasing both films. And yes, I'm definitely trying to promote both films with Tribeca Films' help. That's one of the reasons we're here today. Yeah, you're
0: welcome. Um, From a television aspect and from a film aspect, do you have any favorite TV shows that you watched growing up, and any favorite films? That you've drawn, inspired. I mean, I know you mentioned a few for Rubberneck.
1: F- I mean, t- favorite TV. It's like a wasteland of TV. I grew up watching really horrible network television, for the most part. Three's Company, Facts of Life, Silver Spoons, Different Strokes. I mean, yeah, I don't know why, but that's what I grew up watching. There was no Netflix when I was growing up. Uh, but a little bit later, I don't know if it was high school or when, but I got really into the Larry Sanders Show with Gary Shandling, and that was the first show that I thought, "This is really." amazing and something really special and and really, 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 really funny. That was the first show that I remember being kind of blown away by, comedically. And movies, too too many to mention, but a movie that really inspired me to start making movies was Sherman's March, which is a documentary by Ross McElwee, and uh, I think it's a really interesting, uh, interesting doesn't begin to describe it, but just a very honest, funny, courageous, completely original film.
3: Uh, this is just a general question about it, filming with improv. Um, do you find it challenging because uh, you have to do so many takes sometimes for a certain scene, and then do you find something that works with the improv, and then have to reshoot it? Or I, I'm just curious how. It yeah,
1: works. no, it's it's very tricky to sh- to shoot improv. It's it's very hard to have physical continuity from one take to another. And if you guys are doing totally. If you're going to totally different zany places from take to take, it's obviously going to be hard to intercut those takes. So I don't try to, I do very, I try to make my improv as structured as possible. Basically I don't try to, I I keep my actors on a leash. I let them change the words, but the ideas, the motivations, what's at stake cannot change. Otherwise I'm not going to be able to edit this. So I try to kind of localize uh, the room for improv as much as much as I can. And I also like to shoot multi-camera. I like to shoot two cameras at once, which will obviously get you a lot of jams uh, in the editing as well. I like to light from above, so the actors have sort of 360-degree room to move around so we won't see a light stand or anything like that, so they're not physically... Um, you know, there's no physical problems. But I would just try to keep it as contained as possible, otherwise you're going to end up being very limited or being forced to reshoot, neither which you want to do.
3: Hi. Um, I was just wondering, as a student filmmaker, uh, the word networking is constantly drilled into our brains, and I was wondering how um, networking has helped shape your career and how important it's been into making your films.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very important. Networking can, can mean two different things, I feel like. It could mean trying to schmooze with executives over martinis and climbing a ladder, in a sense, or it could mean getting drunk at a film festival and talking to like-minded filmmakers. So I've only done the latter, and it's it's completely, that's how I've been able to make my movies, that's how I've been able to act in all these movies, it's how I met Lena Dunham, it's how, it's how I met all these filmmakers that I really like collaborating with. And uh, it's a huge part of being a filmmaker for me. I mean, filmmaking, as we know, is an incredibly collaborative medium. Especially uh, when you're doing a low-budget movie, you have to depend on so many favors, and uh, so many, so much volunteering of time and energies. And unless you have this sort of network of uh, of people you can rely on, it's going to be very hard to make a movie. There are exceptions to this, but that, that's generally the case. And there's a lot of bartering. Like you know, I, I've countless times I've uh, you know acted in someone's movies for two or three days, so they would operate a boom microphone on my movies for a few days. That happens all the time. So there's a lot of back scratching involved. So that's sort of the short answer. And then one little thing I could add is a lot of people go to film school, and I'm sure you can learn a lot. I personally don't do well in those type of environments. It feels like what a lot of people get out of film school is the context and and the networking from there. But I feel if you are social or if you can drink a few beers and get social and go to a major festival like South by Southwest or one of those type of festivals, you can get a lot of networking done as long as you're not annoying and not too needy. Um, You can meet a lot of people very quickly, um, and that'll definitely help you make movies down the road. Hi.
3: I uh, recall in an episode of Girls, your character uh, made some sort of reference to Andy Kaufman. I realized, as soon as you said that, how much your humor reminds me of him. How much of an influence would you say he is on your persona
1: and your work? a huge influence. I mean, I dropped out of grad school to try to become the next Andy Kaufman, and I failed. That's why I'm here. But but uh, he's a huge influence. I mean, he changed my whole perception of what stand-up comedy could be, and I spent most of my early 20s trying to replicate it with very little success. But I, I love Andy Kaufman, and it was such a treat to be able to weave him into the show. A- and more Andy Kaufman stuff will come onto the show. I'll add that Lena's mom... Lori, excuse me, Lori Simmons, who's a very talented artist, she grew up with Andy Kaufman. They went to school together. Her father was Andy's dentist, the, the whole family history. So she has a lot of Andy stories. She knows I'm an Andy fan. And uh, she gives me a lot of, not a lot, but every now and then she'll give me some Andy Kaufman memorabilia. And that's those are the most prized possessions I own. So when Ray makes his little speech to, to Shoshan in the subway, that the only thing he owns is is, an 8x10 of Andy Kaufman. There's a lot of truth to that for me.
3: So if you like what you saw tonight, both movies are opening this Friday at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and Alex will be there as well. And we really appreciate you coming out tonight.
1: Thank you. And the movies are available on VOD and iTunes nationwide as of today.
3: There's that too. Thanks.
2: Thank you very much.